the fact that we're flawed is why we need these systems in place that can deal with those flaws and at the same time provide as much freedom as possible, as much ability to chase our dreams and find fulfillment as possible. And that's a delicate balance. But I think classical liberalism, if followed correctly, is our best bet. Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today I'm joined by Dr. Eric Smith. Eric Smith is a professor of rhetoric and composition at York College, Pennsylvania in the United States. So welcome, Eric. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here. Now, to start, could you please define what rhetoric and composition is and then give an outline of your pathway to becoming a professor in that field? Um, okay, well, a thorough answer to that question would take several sessions. Um, I'll try my best to talk about it as uh, briefly as possible. Rhetoric, um, the common and most popular definition comes from Aristotle. And his definition of rhetoric is the ability to discern in any given situation the available means of persuasion. Um, so you have to ask there, what available? Aren't all means of persuasion available to everybody if they simply know about them? Well, not if you're considering your audience in rhetorical context in general, right? Or what's called kairos in rhetorical theory, a, a confluence of time, place, speakers, subject matter, um, things like that. So, you know, if you are speaking about police violence, and uh, before George Floyd, you're going to use different language than you probably would after George Floyd, especially immediately after. You may uh, choose more sensitive verbiage. You may choose uh, different metaphors, different references to history and things like that because you're gauging your audience and, and, and feeling their uh, emotion and concern, right? And you would address that accordingly. So harsher language isn't available to you if you are concerned about persuading, right? The point of rhetoric is to persuade ultimately. And if you really care about that, you're going to be careful about what you say and acknowledge what you can't or shouldn't say in that situation. Um, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but a lot of the issues in my field and in academia in general is that you know, the the audience is less important. You know, now it's about the speaker, you know, and, and it's less about persuasion and more about expression. Like I am fill in the blank, hear me roar it is the uh, is the raison d'etre as opposed to uh, as, as opposed to, um, you know, actually persuading. And I should define uh, what I just said. Um, I'll just repeat the whole thing uh, in simpler terms. Um, the very point of rhetoric is to persuade, but if you're taking it to be an expression of who you are and that you're here, right, um, it's, it's less rhetoric and more of a different kind of performance. So anyway, um, how I got into rhetoric, well, I was into it before I realized I was into it. Um, in high school, I became fascinated with, uh, you know, how groups form, um, their insularity, the, the, um, 
rules of engagement from one group to another, why they differ. And this was a rhetorical endeavor. Uh, rhetoric is also about, you know, using language to make meaning, right? Um, and to, you know, make sense of the world in certain ways. So, um, you know, this group will have different values, attitudes, and beliefs, and and different interpretations of the world. And another group will have different values, attitudes, and beliefs, and a particular interpretation of the world. Sometimes groups can overlap. Um, sometimes they butt heads. I was fascinated by that because I was seeing some butting of heads. And um, I, I didn't expect it, and I didn't know what to make of it. So I, I was like tacitly fascinated with that. It wouldn't be until graduate school that I would discover that I could get a PhD in rhetoric. I was there for um, American literature um, and, you know, basically philosophical thought in general. So, um, so, so an English degree, essentially, or yes. an Eng English plus philosophy. Yes. Well, I mean, it's American philosophy, and some people think that's an oxymoron. So, um, <laughs> is it, so, is it um, philosophy? Philosophy? I mean, well, I mean, yeah. you, you would think so, but you know, uh, I, for example, I teach a course called American Philosophical Thought. Now, it's called that as opposed to American philosophy, so that we can talk about some key figures and what they wrote, um, even if they're not considered technically philosophers. Secondly. Um, when it does come to American philosophy, you probably think first and foremost of pragmatism. Uh, William James, John Dewey, George Herbert Mead, uh, and so many others. And that concept is known for what Cornell West calls the evasion of philosophy. You know, we're not going to navel gaze here and think about the meaning of life. We're going to intellectualize about things that are important that have immediate consequences, right? So, I mean, that that alone right there, you know, some um, diet in the world philosophers would, you know, dismiss that not as philosophy, but as, I don't know, something else. Well, I mean, that, that's interesting because philosophy has a reputation of being na navel gazing. Right. But I think if we go back, you know, go back to Aristotle and Plato and, and Socrates, and all those folk, it was much more about being in the world. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. It was about holding forth in public, right? And and, uh, and how to design um, institutions in ways that are most conducive to humankind, you know? So it, it was about interaction, for sure. Real world application of thought, in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. Rhetoric. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about uh, when you're a student and your interest in the different discourses and how they merged, because essentially that's, I mean, we're, we're very much aligned in our interest there because I've called the podcast The Shape of Dialogue because in a sense what you're defining there is a particular shape. What fascinates me is how we can dialogue and how we can't dialogue. There have been many situations in my life where dialogue is just not possible because you're not you're coming from different epistemologies, and that's what I'm quite interested in is that connection between diverse epistemologies and how you make how you get that cross fertilization of of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Would I be correct in saying rhetoric is in a sense the the study of the meta discussion? 
there's persuasion, you know, advertisements are persuading and political operators are persuading. But in a sense, what I'm getting from you is that it, it, rhetoric is a much broader topic than just persuasion. It's really a meta view of the whole field. Um, yes, uh, like I said, you know, you can use rhetoric to persuade, you can use it to make meaning, uh, you can use it to construct meta narratives or, you know, the uh, societal stories we tell ourselves to make sense of the world, right? Those are rhetorical endeavors. How can I convince you, um, you know, with a uh, sufficient amount of logic, emotion, and credibility, right? Uh, that we should live our lives this way as opposed to this way. There are three kind of branches of rhetoric. There is the deliberative, which is, you know, basically political rhetoric. How do I convince the audience that this way forward is better than this way forward? You know, uh, when it comes to the well-being of society. Then there's forensic, which is more about what happened before. I'm going to prove to you that this action means this as opposed to this. So, you know, perhaps a lawyer is using forensic rhetoric to uh, convince the jury of the innocence of his or her client. And then there's epideictic or ceremonial, which is basically just about celebration. You're not really trying to persuade in a deliberative sense. You're not trying to convince people of actual facts and their consequences. You're trying to praise somebody or tear down somebody, right? It's less about persuasion and more about performance. It doesn't mean persuasion isn't a part of it. Can you give me some examples of that? Of epideictic? Yeah. Um, well, a funeral oration, right, is epideictic rhetoric. You know, you're celebrating somebody. You're not, you know, convincing somebody of some kind of a proposition or something like that. Perhaps you're convincing them that you should, you know, remember this person fondly, right? Perhaps that's the aspect of um, persuasion there. Um, but also it can be tearing somebody down. I sort of immediately got the ceremonial aspect of it, but it was the tearing someone down. What's the example of that? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, the first thing I think of are political ads, you know, the negative ones in which you're tearing down the other opponent. There is a persuasive element to that, obviously. Vote for me instead of him, right? But ultimately, you're not attacking that person's ideas or the merit of that person's ideas. You're attacking that person's character. That is more epideictic than it would be deliberative or forensic or something like that. So how do you study rhetoric? Well, I studied it by looking at its history and development. Most people start with Plato, right? I, I start with uh, act, actually Eastern philosophy, you know, and uh, you know, the Buddha talks about rhetoric, you know, so um, I, I, I start there. Maybe a little Lao Tzu, um, whose ideas overlap with rhetoric regarding you know, how meaning changes from one context to another. And then I moved through Aristotle, then the Romans, uh, Cicero most prominently. And we get through the Middle Ages uh, quickly, not a big fan. Then we get to the 19th century and Nietzsche, who talked about rhetoric into the 20th century, uh, especially uh, when it comes to Kenneth Burke 
and his work. And now, you know, um, there are some rhetoricians out there who are doing very interesting things, except for in my field, those interesting things involve a take on anti-racism and social justice and rhetoric. And I feel like the field has taken a substantial turn because what used to be a focus on deliberative and forensic rhetoric is now, in my opinion, becoming more epideictic. It's more about performance, or as some people in my field will say, showing up and showing out. You know, um, it's about uh, expressing your personhood, your identity. And perhaps the persuasive element is that you should respect my identity, right? But, you know, those uh, audience consideration isn't as uh, prominent of a consideration as it has been previously. So the social justice turn in rhetoric has also turned it away from more traditional notions of it. So are there, you know, the three forms of rhetoric, is one better than the other or are they all on a par? Because in a sense, what I'm, I'm getting a sense from you is that, that the last comment about social justice rhetoric and anti-racism rhetoric, it's, it, you know, you, you mentioned it was performative, but in a sense, I'm getting that it's not as high value as the other two forms of rhetoric. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, they're all equally valuable in that, you know, a given context will dictate which one, you know, you should use, right? So there will be times where you, you can be steeped in deliberative rhetoric or forensic rhetoric, but if you're in a situation where you have to give some kind of, uh, you know, celebratory statement or something like that, well, that's where epideictic skills come in, right? So... Uh, they're equal in that there are situations that are conducive to each one of them. My issue is that, you know, deliberative rhetoric, especially, is supposed to be a primary aspect of a democratic society where everybody apparently has a voice, not just a vote, but a voice. And through deliberative democracy and freedom of speech, they can make their case um, for, uh, you know, voting for a certain politician or, or uh, creating a certain policy, right, or changing a certain policy or something like that. Um, that's where deliberation comes in. And I, I'm seeing that focused on a little bit less in activist circles, mainly because it, it seems like they've given up on it um, and they've given up on good faith listening to deliberative rhetoric especially when it comes to uh, race or any kind of uh, advocacy for a minority group, right? So they've given up on deliberation. And now it's all about force, really. Um, and, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, pulling at the heartstrings or morality or guilting people into doing certain things. And obviously everything is, I mean, that's rhetorical as well to a large degree, but it's not deliberative in the traditional sense. Right. So deliberative, in a sense, is a process of persuasion on particular points. So X is better than Y sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Where the, if, uh, remind me how to say, is it epistemic? No. What, you, what, what, what the, I'm the, sorry, the, what the, I was the, the third, epidemic. 
epideictic yeah yeah as it sounds like it's more didactic and uh with you know touches of authoritarianism thrown in for good measure it's sort of like the priesthood i'm i'm upon high i have the holy word i'm telling you how it is is that is that a good characterization well i i think that characterization makes sense and here's why um in my field anyway um you know, you can see an example of what or why John McWhorter calls, you know, uh, contemporary anti-racism a religion. Can you just uh, just tell the audience who John McWhorter is? John McWhorter is a professor at Columbia, uh, primarily in linguistics, and he has a lot to say about the nature of contemporary anti-racism. Um, he, he's not a big fan of the methodologies. And um, I have to agree with most of what he says regarding that. Um, and he kind of has a reputa reputation for speaking against progressive left tactics, mainly because they don't make any sense or their logical progression is something that we don't want to see, like, say, segregation or um, the lowering of standards in schools or, or something like that. That's who that is. He calls this a religion because it's not about deliberation you know it, it's about something else it's about something more faith-based more um e emotional so when i go to a conference and i observe i'm seeing a trend that speaks to this religiosity when somebody gives a, a talk at a conference that used to be a kind of deliberation right this person is making an argument for, for a certain viewpoint now it seems more epideictic and i say that because during the q a the only things you're allowed to do is praise the talk or ask some question akin to how can i be more like you if you actually ask a a, a challenging question especially when it comes to race i'm not talking about every subject matter when it comes to race if you ask a challenging question it's considered bullying you're considered a troll. And that is less academic and more religious. Think about being in church. Um, you don't stand up when the preacher gives his interpretation of John 3.16 and say, I'm, I'm not really uh, following you there. I think there's a better interpretation of that. You don't do that. You just let the preacher talk. You know, Maybe you talk about it with friends afterwards, but you let the preacher talk, right? So now academia, is becoming like that you don't you don't you don't challenge you just listen and praise well you know going back to nietzsche you know god is dead and although i'm not a religious man at all never have been and i can imagine never will be but it seems like there's the void that god has left is being filled by these woke social justice dogmas would you agree with that that there's there's actually in a sense a problem um no matter what you think about religion and and for all its flaws there in a sense is a problem of that void having to be filled i forget who said this and i, I apologize to whoever said it but um he called it a god-shaped hole right yeah. that we need to fill meaning that, you know, if we don't embrace more traditional forms of religion, we'll create a new one, perhaps a secular one or something like that to fulfill this need. You mentioned Nietzsche. Let's let's go back to him. 
and talk about the concept of resentment, right? Um, when he talked about resentment, um, I believe most prominently in the genealogy of morals, you know, it's this idea of, you know, the, the, the slave mentality. Um, I don't have what you have, so I'm going to uh, attack you in some way for it. Um, or I'm just upset in general and I need to take it out on somebody. That needs a justification that, according to Nietzsche anyway, that, that natural sentiment in, in societies needs an outlet. It needs a justification. And you can see that um, in a lot of contemporary anti-racism um, and uh, social justice in general. You know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of their ideas don't really seem to make sense, but they are indeed pushing back on people who seem to enjoy some modicum of success or power. The Tocqueville said that the more at peace a society is, the crueler a lot of people become. Because when there is a blatant problem in society, well, there's your target. You know, uh, you can just uh, project all this resentment onto that. But when there's nothing wrong, quote unquote, then you know the definition of wrong broadens, and more things are wrong. Things that were okay last week are now suddenly, you know, uh, something worth bristling over. So, you know, it's it's not just about you know God being dead and trying to uh, either reinvigorate God or reanimate God or or uh, find a new one. It's also about finding a target for this resentment. Yes, well, back in the day, you had a scapegoat. Um, right. So I'm just trying to think. He was a um, there's a professor. He was French professor, a philosopher from Stanford University in the 70s, I think. Uh, I think his name, his surname was Rene. I think. Mm. Anyway, I can't remember. But he talks about um, societies requiring a scapegoat, and if you go back to religion, you know. Jesus Christ is the ultimate scapegoat, and that's what you where you single out one person and uh, burn them at the stake, and mm -hmm. everyone goes away happy because we've dealt with the problem. And right. um, so, but should we just define you know some terms here? I first discovered you and your work when a video from the Heterodox Academy popped up, and I'd recommend everyone listens to that. What was interesting about it is you're taking a, a, a rhetorical analysis of the rhetoric of anti-racism. But what's interesting is how can anyone be anti-anti-racism? And I know that's not what you're saying, but right. I think to someone who doesn't have a background in thinking analytically, possibly, it seems to be an oxymoron to be anti-anti-racism. Right. So well, do, you to, do you want to just uh, sort of outline what your concerns are there and then also talk about what we could you know call woke culture and the problems with that i am against racism obviously um as every black person should be <laughs> you know um but what i am also against are contemporary methodologies for how to go about fighting racism what i'm seeing these days is an embrace of victimhood and an essentialism of certain uh, groups that have been traditionally marginalized that I think is doing more harm 
than good. Could you just define what essentialism means? Yes. Um, essentialism is when you look at a group and think, okay, they're all the same. You know, they're not individual minds thinking individual things. They're all kind of a monolith, They, which means that, you know, um, they all have the same reactions to certain things in the world. They all have the same desires and wants and dreams. So, so um, they, a, a racist is an essentialist. Yes. It, it's sort of the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. But see, now the anti-racist are essentializing based on race. But what I, what I say is they're trying to fix racism with more racism. Precisely. They're trying to fix racism with more racism. And if we want to put my problems with them succinctly, that's it. Yeah. Two wrongs make a right. Precisely. In fact, uh, Ibram X. Kendi has gone as far as to say, um, the, the writer for uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he has gone as far as to say the only remedy to present racism is, or, or to past racism is present racism, right? The only remedy to past racism is present racism. Um, I don't agree with that. Um, I think there are other ways to go about this. And I think those other ways, you know, align with what are supposed to be classical liberal values. Critical race theorists, and I can explain that a little bit later on, they have this mistrust of classical liberal values. They think that it's basically a way to perpetuate the status quo, the status quo being inherently racist, or they would say systemically racist. I believe that classical liberal values are in and of themselves social justice. Why? Well, because they embrace and respect individuality, which is the opposite of racial essentialism, right? Each group has a bunch of individuals and not a bunch of clones. Um, freedom of speech, there's that. A primacy of reason, obviously deliberation, right? Ownership of property, you know, all these different things. Um, but the most prominent values regarding classical liberal value, individuality, freedom of speech, equality, obviously, primacy of reason. These things are good for social justice. The issue with classical liberalism is that throughout its history, we often fail to live up to those values, right? Uh, you can't talk about equality but enslave people, right? That is, that is a, a contradiction that a lot of people point to when they're you know, downplaying the value of classical liberalism. I think we should keep classical liberalism and just do it better. And when we do it better, it does benefit marginalized groups. For example, let's look at freedom of speech. Rich people don't need that law. You know, right? Um, uh, Jeff Bezos does not lead, need that law. It would just be like, oh, you're going to shut me up? Here's a billion dollars that I just pulled out of my couch cushions. Go ahead and have that. The freedom of speech is for the little guy, right? It's for the marginalized, uh, the powerless, so that the people who have power don't try to silence them because they don't like what they're saying. That's who freedom of speech is for. Now, there are a lot of people in contemporary anti-racist circles who think, who equate freedom of speech, right, with inherent hate speech right? Freedom of speech means the bullies are allowed to talk, right? As opposed to the would-be victims of the bullies are allowed to talk, but they won't be victims because freedom of speech, 
You know, so that's, I mean, that's one of the ways that I see classical liberalism as being itself social justice, not the opposite. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. Can you just define what social justice is? Um, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and, and, I'm, yeah. I'm always weary of, um, you know, important words with modifiers in front of them, like social justice. Yes. You know, it's a bit like we, at the start of the conversation when you said American philosophy. You know, to me, it's philosophy, and it just, yeah. you just happen to be born in America. Uh, and social justice, well, there's justice, you know, which is actually an incredibly hard word to define. You need yes. to go back, go back to Plato and Socrates. But, you know, when you start adding social justice, well, what is it? I, I find that quite interesting that someone of your intellect is actually struggling to define what it is. Well, I struggle to define it because, you know, every time I come across it, there's a different definition. Right. It's whatever you, know? you want it to be. In a right. Sense. It's whatever you want it to be. Yeah, it's more a, a tactical weapon than actually uh, something that's, you know, has a real meaning in the world. It's definitely being used that way. You know, I, I think of social justice as, you know, uh, fairness and the affordance of equality um, on as many people as possible. Yeah. You know, but that's not the definition that a lot of people use. Yeah. And just going back to classical liberal values, in a sense, I see them a bit like the platonic forms. They're these ideals that we're all striving for. Well, hopefully as many people as po possible are striving for. Mm -hmm. But because we're mere mortals, you know, we fail. We succeed, but we also fail. And, and I think the, you know, the founding fathers are the perfect example of that. How you could come up with something like the American Constitution, which is a, essentially a, a set of protocols to maximize as much freedom and flourishing as possible, and then hold slaves. And I think from the social justice warriors' point of view, they have a very myopic, and I would say, you know, um, or due respect to them, but very ignorant view of it. They take one variable that, you know, was it Benjamin Franklin held slaves, but they don't actually understand that he was a human in his time, in a particular context. You talk about in rhetoric how context and temporality is important. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit like they look at the past through today's lens. Right, And you can't do that because if I was born 200 years ago as a European, I would be highly, highly racist mm -hmm. against anyone with dark skin. It would be very unlikely. The probability of me being an enlightened individual would be very low. But because I'm born in more enlightened times, I've got access to better ideas. I've got a, essentially access to a better set of protocols, which make society on a whole better, which is good for all participants. Yeah. So do, do you want to talk, talk about sort of their, their myopic view of life or, and, or particularly history? Well, we should know that the founding fathers didn't all agree about slavery. You know, um, many of them wanted to get rid of it. But, you know, this was a compromise to satisfy the southern states you know, and just move along with the founding of this country. I'm actually less interested in defending the founding fathers as people as I am defending their ideas. 
Yes, that's the really important distinction. Yeah, where the knowledge is not tied to the to the knower or the yes. producer of that knowledge. And there there are people uh, in my field in academia in general who commit what's called a genetic fallacy, right? Um, if somebody in the past, you know, had a, a, some kind of idea, that idea is tainted because that person was bad, you know. Um, and it goes it goes as far as to say that classical music is inherently racist because it was created at a very racist time. Well, you know? it's it's the argument against architecture. Hitler used architecture to kill six million Jews, so therefore we should all be against architecture. Right. That's how ridiculous the argument is. Yeah, it, that's yeah, and there are people really making those arguments. Yeah, you I know, mean, I, Hit, I, yeah. Hit, Hitler didn't like jazz, so is, does that make jazz better than classical music? Um, <laughs> it, they probably would say yes. I don't know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Sadly, tragically, it's actually comical the thinking that the woke are producing because it seems to be so easily debunked. I mean, I'm just a humble music teacher. I'm a musician. I've spent, you know, a thousand years teaching kids to play music. Yet I can, without too much intellectual rigor, debunk their ideas quite simply. But what is interesting is how these ideas are taking root and, you know, what you're talking about, how they've become prevalent in academia. In New Zealand recently, we've had a group of academics from Auckland University wrote a letter to the editor of a national magazine called In Defence of Science. Their concerns were that the traditional Māori knowledge, Māori are the, were the first people to arrive in New Zealand about, in about 1300, that traditional Māori knowledge was starting to be included in the science curriculum and they had, you know, I think very valid concerns that uh, the metaphors were being mixed, non-scientific information, obviously important information, but nevertheless non-scientific was being included in the science curriculum. And there was a massive uproar about it, and over a thousand academics signed a letter against these seven professors. So in New Zealand, this ideology, this woke ideology of sort of non-critical thinking has also taken hold. Why do you think it's happened? What is the appeal? Well, it's been around. Well, let's talk about critical social justice. Uh, well, let's first talk about critical race theory, which comes out of critical legal studies, uh, and it was, you know, pretty much housed in law schools for um, the major part of its, uh, you know, existence. And what that does is it, there's a inherent in distrust of classical liberalism. You know, there's that. We talked about that already. Um, there is this concept of intersectionality, which means that, you know, no, no person is just one thing. I'm not just black. I'm a black male, middle class, and, and so on. And we should consider those things when judging somebody and not just, you know, skin color or something like that. I say we shouldn't even do skin color, but, you know, whatever. There's a concept of interest convergence. And what that means is that, you know, I'll put it as simply as possible. Good things happen for people of color only when they also benefit white people. You know, um, other than that, you know, they won't do it. So uh, Derek Bell, a prominent, if not the prominent uh, critical race theorist, looks at 
desegregation of schools in the 1950s in America. That wasn't done because it was the right thing to do. It was done to show the world how open-minded we are as opposed to those quote-unquote commies, right? So a form of, vi a form of virtual, sig virtual yes. signaling, right? Yes, yes. So we talk about that. I mean, I just, the concept of interest conversion transcends race. That's kind of how the history of humankind has happened, right? I'm not, you know, we're, it's, just, it's transactional in a sense. Mm. You know, um, white people do it to white people. I mean, that's that's what, but, but anyway, that's a different conversation. Well, well, I mean, just on that point, I mean, the word slave comes from the word Slav. Yeah. So I think, you know, probably from the Romans, they just enslaved the Slavs. So yeah. it's, you know, white on white brutality. Right. So, yeah. So, um, you know, tenets like that are part of critical race theory. Um, but that has morphed into what's called critical social justice, which is a lot more dedicated to the us versus them idea, the oppressor versus the oppressed. There's this narrative of victimhood and, you know, being colonized and things like that. Uh, and in that narrative, there are certain roles and people are cast in those roles, no matter who they are, based on how they look, their ethnic heritage or, or something like that, which again is essentialist and racist. You know, they really run with that and they firmly believe that racism is always already happening. Right. One of the tenets of critical social justice is to not ask whether something racist happened, but to ask how it manifested in that moment. Something racist definitely did happen. In fact, if there's any kind of interaction between a person of color and a white person, that is an inherently racist interaction. According to them, somehow you are being racist right now. Yeah, so we're talking right now. So, so, somehow you're being racist and you're oppressing me. I'm glad you picked that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was trying to hide it, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, CRT morphs into CSJ. Obviously, CRT is still its own thing, but it has these, in my opinion, bastardizations out there. And one of them is called critical social justice. Um, and more and more scholars were embracing this idea, including, you know, Robin D'Angelo, who's uh, popular for writing books like right, White Guilt and now Nice Racism. Uh, she's a self-proclaimed critical social justice uh, scholar. Right. Um, so they're, they're popping up more and more. And then 2020 happens with the death of uh, first Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Things blow up. Race is fourth, first, front and foremost, right, in, in the American psyche, in the Western psyche, um, really. And what this does is really, it, it shoots critical social justice into the stratosphere, right? Because, well, this needs to be punished. This ideology and these activists and scholars seem really serious. And th there's an inherent indictment of whiteness you know, not white people, whiteness, right? And that was embraced. And the authors of these books uh, ran with it, you know, and, you know, they traveled a country speaking about these things. Um, a, a lot of erroneous views, in my, in my opinion. And that's where we are now. 
And I, I see the detriments of critical social justice in um, not just uh, in college classrooms, but in K through 12 now, right? I just um, attended a conference called Parents Unite about um, you know parents, scholars, even some of the students giving presentations about how um, critical social justice is manifesting in their schools, um, not as subject matter per se, but as educational methodology, right? Um, how the teachers are teaching, right? They're, they're starting to see this and they're starting to segregate students and, um, you know, uh, you know uh, so, presenting sorry, students with sorry, the narrative that I talked about. You're before. saying this segregating students, you mean the segregating students by race? Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. Right. So, so good old classroom apartheid. Yep. Right. Sorry, I, I, I must be wrong. I thought apartheid was bad. <laughs> but obviously, I've got that wrong. Yes. In fact, you, you're racist for saying that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. yeah. most things I'll say will be racist, I imagine, today. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it is fascinating. I mean, I've looked into this. Um, and again, you know, what I always try and do is get to the core of an issue, where it's come from. And correct me if you think I'm wrong, but what I see is it stemming from the postmodernist thinkers, you know, the, the Frankfurt School that emerged out of the out of the 30s, I think it was, 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. and has sort of then morphed into what we have today, where is a critique of the underpinning ideas of, of Western society, which is those mm -hmm. classical liberal ideas you're talking about. And if you go further back, you know, you talked about oppressor and the oppressed dichotomy. I mean, that is pure Marxism. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, ethno-Marxism, I guess we can call it. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it doesn't matter. You, you, you just choose choose your, your category. You've got the oppressed and the oppressor, whether it's white mm -hmm. on black or, um, you know, you can go to any society. You right. can have a Marxist, Marxist take on it. So is all of this coming from the left? Um, is all of the social justice and the kind of neo-Marxism? Yeah, the critical race theory, the critical legal theory. Yes, the it's 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 coming from the left. However, the left doesn't have a monopoly on dividing people based on race. No, you know? no. Right. Well, that's that's. I think you know it's very much the historical swing of the pendulum, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've come to the conclusion that I find left and right dichotomy a bit meaningless because if you look historically, the the sands shift over time. Mm -hmm. And again, what I find tragically humorous about the situation is that the progressive now seem to be using tactics that resonate with racist policies from the past. I mean, just mere segregation. That is an, it should be an anathema to all right. of us in our societies. Yes, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. The, you know, again, going back to Plato, he was big on education. And winning the education narrative is a very powerful position to hold. And it seems uh, the type of people who are attracted to education tend to be what I call the narrative classes, which tend to be people on the left. And so you have this 
slow move to what I imagine what to give them their credit. They're tr- all they're trying to do is make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Um, the teachers, the the proponents of critical race theory, critical legal theories. Well, I mean that the woke, the woke in general. That depends on the angle you take. I mean, I think a lot of them just want to make the world a better place. And a lot of them um, may be abiding by, you know, the Frankfurt School, especially the 60s and 70s Frankfurt School, which, you know, saw, you know, a lot of benefit for them in a lot of the civil rights protests and things like that, especially the black nationalist uh, protests, you know, um, that's the new proletariat. Let's ride this, you know, into, you know, uh, bringing down classical liberalism and capitalism. Um, So, I mean, well, I'll put it this way. There's a philosopher named, there was a philosopher named Kenneth Burke who um, talked about certain frames in which we can see society or at least certain situations. And he devised the comic frame and the tragic frame. The comic frame basically says, oh, these people aren't bad. They're misguided. You know, they're just mistaken. You know, um, they're at worst, they're useful idiots. Right. Um, then, then there's a tragic frame. And a tragic frame is these people aren't misguided. They're bad. Right. They, they, they do want they're doing this. They have an agenda to tear down classical liberalism and build up something else. And if they are abiding by Frankfurt School ideology and and desires, um, they want to replace that with something more akin to communism. Yeah. Um, But but I I would sort of disagree in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say, I, I, I agree that they're bad, but from their own perspective, I think they're trying to do good. So there's a, there's a moral imperative that they have, and they have a very, very, you know, a, a zealot-like moral imperative to do mm-hmm. what they they think is good. So, you know, take right. a boring, boring example, but, you know, Hitler. I mean, yeah. if there ever was a bad person, I think, you know, he'd be number one candidate. But I think from his perspective, he was trying to make Germany a better place. But I think also you have to put into the mix that he was, you know, there's a certain amount of egotism involved. Right, you can you know always got to consider that in a political operator, but if you take St- Stalin, you know I mean again I think you could say he's probably worse than than Hitler, but in a sense they had a set of ideologies or an ideology which they thought was the you know the salvation to to their country, and they implemented it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I and so I mean we can look at them in kind of the comic in a sense too. You know, in that they they mean, you know, they they think this is the right way to go and they'll they will accomplish it by any means necessary. Yeah. I mean, if you you go back to some Roman emperors, I think, you know, Nero was definitely bad. I don't think he had a he had an idea of like, let's make Rome Rome a better place Uh, or or Caligula or I think Tiberius. You know, they were they were they were pretty bad people as opposed to, say, Augustus and Marcus Aurelius. In a sense, the problem is you've got two sides of the argument which both think they're doing good. Mm-hmm. And you've got one side which is using, was, was the term deliberative um, rhetoric, mm-hmm. which, is, which is using reason 
argument, consideration of both sides, empirical evidence. And then you've actually got the other side, which is just completely narrative driven. I think the difference between, say, classicism and romanticism, you know, romanticism was a focus on emotions, on feeling over fact, on the focus on group identity. Um, there's probably a few more things. And when I look at the woke, that's what they seem to be uh, imbibing and appealing to. There, there definitely seems to be a romanticized self-image uh, among the um, contemporary activists or the woke, as uh, you know, many people call them. Yes, they think they're on. Um, you know, they're they're the chosen ones doing the right thing, and they're 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 martyrs in a sense. You know, and they're they're always oppressed, and they have to fight the oppressor. And I mean, when they say they're always oppressed. You know, uh, you know, they're they're saying that with substantial money in the bank and education and things like that. But if there's this narrative that says that they are always already oppressed, and you know, uh, they have to push back on this, you know, in order to be good people for for the good of the world. Yeah, but they're doing that while they're on their iPhone, um, <laughs> and while they're they're living in a comfortable, warm, insulated home. Right. in a safe environment with ed, you know education healthcare and a science to back them up which are all derivative of the western classical liberal thought mm -hmm. so they're yeah. this in a sense they're fighting the hand that feeds them that's going back to what i said before they seem to have a very jaundiced view of history right and even contemporarily even when they are um you know trying to help downtrodden people people who don't have money in the bank and, and things like that they're talking about racism when they're really talking about a classism or at best a combination of race and class and you can do that if you go back into um you know ideas like segregation right and how that you know cutting people off from certain aspects or certain areas in a society also cut off certain jobs, you know, which perpetuated class distinctions and things like that. And that has residual effects contemporarily, you know, uh, to, to some degree. However, it's 2021. It's not 1951. Things have changed to the point where there are avenues and opportunities that were not available back then. The idea of segregation, real estate isn't perfect today, okay? I'm not saying, you know, there isn't racism going on um, in that general institution, right? But uh, it's, uh, if I want to move into a, a neighborhood, you know, and the house is available and I have the money, I can probably pull it off, you know? Probably nobody's going to block me. These issues are not as unbearable, right? They're not the... Uh, Leviathan they used to be uh, back in the day, but they're being considered as that. You know, um, there are people who still use terms like you know we're enslaved, right? And they're they're not they're not saying that metaphorically. You know, they're trying to say it as literally as possible. That's what they mean. There's a professor. I want to say her name is Shannon Sullivan. I'm probably getting it wrong. I think her last name is Sullivan. She wrote a article. 
about certain understandings of time. And there's a white understanding of time and a non-white understanding of time. And the non-white understanding of time, things um, are not linear so much as they are on top of each other. So 1492 is today. 1619 is today, right? Um, all these other dates uh, that mark, you know, bad times for people of color are still happening. And she says explicitly in the essay, I'm not being metaphorical. It's still going on in, in a large sense. I think that's a very dangerous idea. I'm trying to be nice. I want to call it stupid. Yeah, it's hysterical. Yeah. 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 And, and what's more, I mean, okay, so if that's the case, what about the good things? Well, obviously, obviously there aren't any good things if you're still enslaved, you know. Right. And, you know, I mean, we only can see what we can see. So if you convince yourself there's only X and not Y, you'll never be able to see Y. And also, there's also the, uh, you know, the imperatives, whether they're financial or academic or just performative rewards of leading and saying these sort of things within your own group. Yeah. I just want to get your take on race. I'm, I would class myself as a, a humanist, so I'm not really concerned about, you know, where you're from, what race you are, you know, as long as, as long as you're a human being, you know, we're on the same, on the same level. I see race as, you know, you talk, people talk about black America or, um, people of color. What they're talking about is the degree of melanin in skin. Yeah. So the difference between me, I'm a, a white pasty European. You've got beautiful dark skin. Now, the difference is that you've got more melanin than I have. I have virtually no melanin. You have, you have the perfect amount. Um, and I can tell you from a person of low melanin, I'm incredibly envious of um, people with high degrees of melanin. It's not fun. Um, okay. So, so that's as this is why I find the discussion of race quite, in a sense, quite boring and almost ridiculous. Because are we just talking about the degree of melanin in our skin? Having said that, I am fully aware that groups get classed by how they look, and the history of the world is, is replete with terrible examples of terrible things happening to people because of how they look and not diminishing that. But if you look at it from just a, an essentially a, as if you're a Martian coming down from down to earth, is that not the only difference between say me and you on a very superficial uh, level? From a biological perspective, you know, uh, everything you're saying is true. From a historical and cultural perspective, there are um, stark distinctions, people would say, right? I think um, we're at a time when we need to, you know, acknowledge that those distinctions are uh, going away and the gaps are closing substantially. And we can also acknowledge that where the gaps aren't closed, we are in a good position to close them, right, by working together and, and doing that. That is not the take you see by a lot of, you know, anti-racist activists and scholars these days. They think the gap is there to stay. Derek Bell actually had a term called racial realism. And this idea was that racism is never going away. The only reason to fight it is to maintain a sense of dignity. Right. So if, if that's the idea, then you're 
you're not going to celebrate how far we've come and have hope for how far we can get. You know, you're just going to see this as a perpetual fight between oppressor and oppressed, which is a vastly different way of looking at the world. Can you talk about primacy of identity at the base of, you know, your your thesis, which is at the base of anti-racist rhetoric? Yes. Yeah, so the primacy of identity is what it used to be called. Um, well, I, it's still called identity politics. Um, I call it the primacy of identity because the original version of identity politics wasn't what it is today. It, it came out of, uh, you know, a, um, a group of feminists called the Kambahi River Collective. And they came to the understandable conclusion that, you know, people of a certain group need to advocate for that group just to make sure that everything that group needs is being taken care of. Some of the best intentioned people outside of that group may miss some things that group needs, right? Or may not agree that that group needs certain things that that group thinks it needs. So that group itself needs to uh, advocate for itself, but it should also work for others. Yeah, you've got to fight your own fight. No one else is going to fight your fight. Right, for you. but it doesn't mean you don't work with others mm. to fight the fight, especially when you have um, what are called superordinate goals. You know, two different groups have the same goal. You know, um, achieving something will benefit them both. And even if they're totally disparate groups, now they're working together. It, it tends to enhance collegiality and and uh, open-mindedness and diversity, actually. The ultimate superordinate goal would be staving off an alien attack, right? <laughs> like every Earthling needs to get together maybe to fight that's, that. Maybe that's what we need. Right. Maybe yeah. that's what we need. Yeah. So, um, wow, I forgot what I was talking about with that alien uh, just, invasion uh, image. Going, the primacy of identity. Right. Okay. And so, how, how that's at the base. So, I call it the primacy of identity now because it, you know, it, it, it's more narcissistic. You know, it's, it's about, like I said before, I am filling the blank, hear me roar. Uh, I have no interest in, you know, um, considering my context or my audience or something like that. I am going to essentialize. That's another aspect of it. You know, there's um, there's a certain unwritten rules about how to be black. And um, there are certain unwritten rules about what it is to be white. Right. And we're going to essentialize. You know, if you look like this, you are supposed to act like this. Nicole Hannah Jones calls it being politically black. And uh, I guess she would call me unpolitically black or apolitically black. I don't know. Others would call me multiracially white, right? So I may not actually be white, but I'm white. You know? So it's addressing your argument with that ad hominem because yes. they're not they're not trying to compliment you with those words. No. Yeah. They're, no, they're, they're not. Yeah. So they're, they're, again, this is what I find so interesting. There's never a refutation, well, I haven't seen it, a refutation of what you're saying or what, what anyone's saying, mm. but they immediately go to the go to the gun, essentially. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, if I call somebody a name, I'm going to explain why I'm doing it first and then further explain after I do it. You know, it's, it's, it's call it a ad hominem sandwich of sorts, um, if you will. But, um, you know, I, and that's a rhetorical situation that I've uh, embraced lately. I, I think we need to start ridiculing ridiculous ideas 
and uh, not pulling punches. Uh, They're definitely not pulling punches. And, you know, they tend to see an attempt at civility um, as almost a kind of weakness. You know, uh, they they tend to, uh, I mean, I've I've seen this enough. You know, they they tend to attack more when somebody's trying their best, you know, to um, to understand and to explain themselves and things like that. So, you know, uh, we should do that. That's a different uh, conversation. Uh, another aspect of primacy of identity um, is this overemphasis on lived experience. Um, it's good to talk about your experiences and to present things in the form of a story that gets through to a lot of people more. Um, but there also is, you know, you're not perfect. Lived experience is not in itself a, you know, uh, a primary way of knowing because that's your experience. What if somebody had a totally different experience? You know, um, are you, who's right, right? According to the, um, the woke, their experience is always right. And somebody else's experience is just a result of a colonized mind, you know, or, or, or something like that. And when you ask, you know, when they give their experiences and you ask for clarification, that's seen as inherently insulting. You know, how dare you, you know, doubt or even question, you know, what's happened to me or what I'm telling you has happened to me anyway. What's more, some people embellish. You know, I, I, I know for a fact that, you know, there's a leader in my field who shared his lived experience. And I'm like, that didn't happen like that. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was around. I, that's that's not, you know. So, so lived experience uh, is a tricky thing. It's a valuable thing, but it should be a supplemental thing. It should supplement more sound arguments and reasoning. It shouldn't be the reasoning, right? Quote unquote reasoning. That's at the essence of the transition from childhood to adulthood. A child only only can experience their own experience mm-hmm. they can only think in terms of their own existence where an adult moves beyond that and this essentially sort of gets to theory of mind but yeah. um yeah so yeah what their methodologies or their you know their approach to discourse seems again you know to use your word extremely narcissistic and childish yes and in fact i i I accuse them of self-infantilization often. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's one thing to infantilize yourself, but it's actually more tragic to infantilize a whole group, especially right. groups you're trying to help. Because basically life is difficult for all of us. I'm a mad fan of Bill Burr, the comedian. You know, mm-hmm. he said, excuse my French, but he said, um, you, know, you know, we've all got a shit sandwich and we've just got to deal with it. What you talk about in your book, which we should mention as well, is the theory of empowerment rather than disempowerment. So you've said that the anti-racist rhetoric is disempowering for the people they're trying to help. And what you're proposing is a theory of empowerment. So do you want to talk to that and also maybe mention your book? Because I've I've started reading your book about a quarter of the way through, and it's, um, okay. it's, been, it's fantastic. I'd highly recommend people read it. Thank you. I had an interview the other day published in which the interviewer um, said quite explicitly that he could not recommend this book. 
and that he hated everything in it. And what so, was so what was so wrong with that? that I'm point? not entirely sure. Right? Did he actually um, read it? Yes, he he, I, he read it. Although when I mentioned certain things in it, he can he tended to you know look like he forgot or something, um, which is fine. I mean, we we have busy lives. Yeah. Um, but anyway, regarding empowerment theory, um, chapter two of the book in question, which is called "A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition." Um, the subtitle being the semblance of empowerment in chapter two, I talk about, you know, well, what is empowerment? And I mentioned empowerment theory, uh, put forth most prominently by the psychologist, Mark Zimmerman, but also quite eloquently by the social worker, Judith A.B. Lee. And what they talk about is that empowerment is a three pronged thing. There's intrapersonal, uh, the intrapersonal component to empowerment, the interactional, and the behavioral components of empowerment. The intrapersonal is basically how we self-manage, how we're self-aware. And as I argue in an upcoming book, how we talk to ourselves, you know, how we talk ourselves into things or out of things. What kind of rhetoric do we use on ourselves? Getting to know oneself and getting to um, effectively and healthily manage somebody's, one's emotions. Well, Put them in a better place to be productive when they're interacting with others which brings us to the second component of empowerment the interactional which is basically how we interact productively with others you know we go from the individual to the individual in society um, and then the behavioral component is how we work together to get things done those superordinate goals you know i i, I talked about earlier so you have to have all three to be empowered, apparently. So I think uh, if we embrace that, then a primacy of identity would melt away because a lot of that is about not feeling secure, you know, um, in certain environments. Um, let's say a, a black person in a predominantly white environment, right? It's about not feeling secure. Uh, the intrapersonal component um, helps deal with that, right? It helps um, manage that in more productive ways. It aligns substantially with emotional intelligence and um, the the true sense of that term and not the woke sense, which we can kind of talk about. Yeah, can you define the sense you're talking about? Emotional intelligence is one's ability to be self-aware, to self-manage one's emotions, to be socially aware, to understand like the social dynamics of a place you're in and other people and to manage relationships, you know, in healthy and productive ways. And there are various, uh, you know, um, competencies within those components of emotional intelligence. But the idea is that if you can work on those things, then you will be better able to address problems in society. If you're doing it from an insecure place where you're always defending your ego or protecting your ego from other people, to the point where a mere uh, critical inquiry is considered harm, then you're not going to be able to interact in productive ways with others and work with them to improve society. You will be able to do that if you're empowered. So empowerment is by no means a panacea. It's, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a thing that will solve everything. It's the first step, right? Um, if you are empowered in this sense, you will be better able to tackle uh, school disparities, 
you'll be better able to tackle some kind of institutional uh, discrimination that's going on. So it's it's the necessary first step that we're not taking. And the people I talk about in the book are definitely not taking it, and they need to. Yeah, so it's it's if you were to win the gold medal at the Olympics, you have to do a lot of work on getting fit. Yeah. So you have to be strong right. before you can run in the race. Right. Yeah, because right. basically, you know, going back to what I said before, life is hard, and the stronger you are, the more able you are to change what needs to be changed. Right. Because what I find interesting about the woke is they're always talking about change. They often don't define it. No. And they there's this great big sort of word which they all genuflect to. But with, you know, real change does actually start from the individual. So in a sense, it's, it's I mean, aligns with Stoic philosophy, I imagine. Yes, it does. So about resilience and anti-fragility. Right. And notice this isn't about suppressing emotions or trying to avoid them. It's about displacing them or it's about channeling them, working, using them to work in your favor as opposed to uh, against you, you know, ruining ideas, overpowering your uh, faculties of reason. Right. So we're not we're not pushing down. The Stoics didn't, you know, dislike emotion. They just wanted to make sure that people weren't being overtaken by those emotions, right? You can't eliminate emotion because we're emotional animals. Right. You know, um, so it's all it's all part of the mix. But it's like you can have too much of a good thing. Too much emotion is not going to get you anywhere if you want to fly to the moon. Yeah. You, know, you have to have you know, deliberative reason processes. But having said that, when they got to the moon, I'm sure it was very emotional. Yes. Um, so, so I mean, that's uh, you mentioned John Dewey in your talk, and um, I have to admit, admit my ignorance. I wasn't familiar with him, and I looked up his line of thinking, and that's that's part. Am I correct? That's sort of part of the pragmatist ethos. Yes. Yes, um, it is, and the pragmatist ethos is well um, missing from a lot of um, anti-racism um, because it is very idealist, you know, um, you know, it is about symbolic gestures and things like that, even if they're not presented that way. That's basically what they are. Bill Maher has an excellent joke about this. He says like in China, they can build a bridge in two days, but here we spend like two weeks arguing about what to call it. Yeah. You know, um, it's, that is a, severe lack of pragmatic thought and Dewey was very clear that in order to improve society we have to work together in pragmatic ways um, it's not just going to get better itself we have to deliberate work together and figure out the best way to go about this right to work together for it to be successful it has to start from a positive place in the sense that we we agree on all these norms, we agree on these methodologies X Y Z, as opposed to you know the critical race theories and the critical diesels, it's negative. It's not actually saying, you know, these are these are things that are good and this is how we can make them better. It's saying it's all bad. Yeah. 
And, you know, the irony is the heart of what I, you know, again, to use the term, I don't really like this term, but Western philosophy, Western thinking. I don't like it because it is, it's in a sense, a bit parochial. Really, it's just a, a set of set of ideas, set of protocols that can be used by anyone. But at the heart of Western thinking is criticism, is cynicism, mm-hmm. and the ability to say, so if you say something and I disagree with it, I'm, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, you, you want to be, I'm all, well, put it this way, I'm always cynical, or maybe critical is a better word, critical of what other people are thinking, even if I agree with it. And I'm always trying to be critical of what I'm thinking, even if I agree with what I'm thinking. Because, you know, I never know, I never know if I'm wrong. Right. Um, I'm always wanting to find the weaknesses in arguments, because then I'll get to a a better, better place. I like that Sam Harris line, you know, Sam Harris said he wants to be wrong for the shortest possible time. Yeah. So, you know, he's yeah, always good. Yeah. But what I find interesting about, you know, critical race theory, critical legal theory, you know, critical X, Y, Z, is that it's just taking one element of our, of a really coherent philosophy it's like taking one tool. It's like taking a, a saw to everything and cutting everything up rather than actually using the, the other tools. You know, to build a house, you need a saw, a hammer, and a screwdriver, amongst other things. Right. Um, it's like they're always chopping. Well, critical, you know, their, their use of critical isn't our use of critical when we think of, say, critical thinking or something right. like that. Okay. Their critical is kind of a synonym for um, you know, counterculture or counterhegemonic. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, um, you're you're negatively critical of the powers that be. You're not approaching it with an open, you know, mind or anything like that. You've already made up the fact that this has to go, right? And you're going to tear it down um, because those are the tools you seem to have. So it's, revolution- it's revolutionary yeah. in nature, right? This revolutionary in nature and the people who, you know, uh, came up with these ideas, people from the Frankfurt School and, and things like that, uh, were, were explicit about that. Yeah. Do you know the work of Professor Stephen Hicks? Not directly, no. His thoughts on the matter is that the Marxists lost the economic argument. It became manifestly apparent that communist economics was going nowhere. Right. And, ca- and capitalist economics was producing abundance beyond belief. So they changed their strategy to cultural, to the cultural sphere. Right. And I think you could argue that they've done a fantastic job in taking over that narrative. And instead of being critical of the employer-employee oppressor-oppressed narrative, now they're critical of, you know, they're taking up the mantle of racism sexism you know homophobia again all these things which are identity based so it's sort of cultural it actually just occurred to me then it is essentially based on who you are and your immutable immutable i'll actually backtrack based on immutable characteristics if i'm a gay black woman somehow that has meaning in in that ideology yeah where in you know, going back to classical liberal terms, it doesn't really matter what you are, does it? Right. It's not supposed to anyway. 
Yeah, well, if, but yeah. you see, that's, again, going back to the platonic forms, you know, these ideals that are out there. The problem is they're, um, uh, they're implemented by human beings. And yeah. we're all prejudiced. We're all fallible. And we've all got limited knowledge. So yeah. we get, you know, it's like, you know, there's more, whenever you do something, there's more ways of getting it wrong than right. And yeah, and that's kind of why we have classical liberalism and, and you know, governments uh, kind of based on classical liberalism. I think it was, um, it was either Madison or, Madison or Hamilton, uh, one of the founding fathers, who said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government, right? I mean, the fact that we're flawed is why we need these systems in place that can deal with those flaws and at the same time provide as much freedom as possible and as, as much ability to chase our dreams and find fulfillment as possible. And that's a delicate balance. But I think classical liberalism, if followed correctly, is our best bet when it comes to that. Well, beautiful. Uh, that's beautifully put, and I think we'll leave it there. A great way to end it. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great honor to talk to you. Do you want to just tell people where they can see your work? Um, and before you do that, I'll just point out, if you haven't read it in the in the notes, Eric is uh, E-R-E-C. It doesn't have an I in it. I'm sure there are lots of Eric Smiths out there who aren't you. With an eye on it. But yeah, just tell people where they can find your work. Well, I, I have uh, writing uh, in Heterodox Academy, uh, Quillette, Ario Magazine, as well as uh, City Journal and Newsweek, which are American. You can also you know find me on YouTube. I'm doing a lot of uh, talks and podcasts, interviews like this, in which I express um, you know things like this and, and other things. My Twitter handle is at Redders of York. And uh, there's an underscore between each word, Redder underscore of underscore York. And uh, you can see a lot what's going on there. Also, I am a co-founder of what's called Free Black Thought, which is a website that showcases the diversity of viewpoint within the black intelligentsia. All right. I don't even like that kind of essentialism black intelligentsia, but, you know, uh, for the sake of uh, brevity, let's just put it that way. There's more than one kind of black person, contrary to so many people's beliefs. So um, we wanted to show that explicitly. There's also a journal of free black thought that you can get to through that website that showcases uh, writing that from, from black authors that you don't typically see in the mainstream media. So if you Google free black thought or just go to freeblackthought.com, um, you can check that out as well. Great. Well, I'll put all those in the show notes so people can just click and uh, get straight to it. Just want to say thank you once again for a great conversation. And thank you for having me. Yeah, and heads up for, for congratulations for your work. I think it's great stuff. Thank you.